Please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12. And we're really going to be reading starting in verse 3. And um, I see a potential problem in our, in our churches today. And I see it in myself as well. And that's that we aren't really in the habit of following the Bible when it comes to how we do church. That we tend to be in the habit of doing church however we've done church for the last 20, 30, 50, 500 years, whatever it is, right? We tend to just be doing church the way we've done church and not reflecting very deeply upon the instructions in scripture for the church. And this has led, I think, to a lot of issues in the church. <laughs> and, um, and so I include myself in this because we have, we have a couple different things that I see nowadays. We often have traditions, right? Just I inherit the way I do church, everything about it, from the, the order of service to the, how many times a week you meet, to how long the service is, to how much of it is teaching. Is it worship? Is it, is it not? Is it this? Is it, is it liturgy? We, we tend to have church discipline issues and leadership, um, who we ask to do leadership, what we call that person. This tends to come from tradition often rather than the text of the Bible. Another side of things, though, is there's those who say tradition, schmadition, who cares? And they sometimes will do church with gimmicks. So it's about uh, gimmicks and it's about kind of what works. I put that in quotes because if the goal of the church is to, is to build the body of Christ, the numbers isn't the way you measure this. Um, so, but they tend to go, what works? As in what creates a, a vibey, large-numbered congregation? Um, but the important question we, we can ask is what? Does anybody know what the big question is you need to ask when you're doing church? The question is, yeah, what does God want me to do with church? It's his church, not mine. I'm to be following instructions, not coming up with new or old things necessarily. There's certainly flexibility in this, but... I want to say, what does the Bible say? What is biblical about church? We can't start by assuming that our way of doing church is right. And that's how I want to begin this study is by just saying, as I talk only about a couple issues in particular today, we'll talk about prophecy. We'll talk about teaching, exhortation, and service or ministry, those different gifts that are in Romans 12. And I want to talk about them from the text. And I'd ask us to not assume too much from our own traditions on those issues. Um, so we're going to begin studying some gifts and looking at the church and how the body functions in Romans 12 and let's approach it freshly and let the word of God renew our minds in this area. Now, I don't have some secret agenda to try to make everyone my, in my little, my little mold that I've got in my head here. I literally just want to teach the text and have like a clean slate to do that on. So, um, so here we go. I'm going to read just a little bit from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, just to give us the background of Romans 12, verse 3. So we're going to back up slightly. Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your, your act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if you remember two weeks ago and three weeks ago, we went into these verses in detail. So the, so the, the background is this. Before we can be the body of Christ functioning properly, we've got to be individuals who are living for Jesus for real and fully. Um, that the church, a church full of individuals who aren't surrendered to Christ won't be much of a church. It's not going to work that well. We're abiding in the vine and we bear much fruit. That's the idea. Um, but now we move forward. Verse three, it says, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now this verse is like a puzzle to be unlocked because this phrase, like, through the grace given to me, what is he talking about? A measure of faith? What is this talking about? So I want to unpack these ideas a little bit, just understand the passage. So he says in the beginning of verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me. What does he mean by grace? Okay, what I'm about to teach you about what this word grace means is going to help you with a bunch of different passages in your New Testament in particular. Several passages, usually in Paul, in Paul's writings, when he's writing. So he says, I say through the grace given to me. What does he mean by grace? Well, you might be like, salvation. But what, what, what did we talk about two, two weeks ago, last time I shared, I think it was, not to have theological meanings on words, when sometimes it just means the dictionary meaning. What is grace 
in the dictionary. What does the word itself mean? It just means it's a free gift. So it doesn't always mean salvation. Grace is anything God gives to me that I've received freely. That's grace. It also includes salvation. It frequently means salvation, but not always. So what does it mean when Paul says the grace given to me? He's referring to ministerial responsibilities and duties, a calling. What he means is that God's grace made him an apostle to the Gentiles. I could say God's grace has made me a pastor and a teacher. You could say God's grace has made you fill in the blank, the things that the, that the Lord has you doing in your life. These things are God's grace to you. You certainly don't deserve it. You certainly aren't worthy. You're, it's not like he looked down at you and be like, you're a star. Come on over here and help me out. I mean, this is obviously not the case. If you think that's the case, then the rest of that verse is for you. <laughs> but so he says, through the grace given to me. Let me. Now, let me give you an example of some of the passages that will make more sense. Now that you know, sometimes Paul says the grace given to me, talking about his calling as a, a ministry calling or an apostle. So Galatians, I'll read this to you. Galatians 2 verses 7 through 9. He says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, so that's his, his commitment in ministry, is the gospel to the, to, the, to the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. That was kind of the confirmation. If you have a ministry calling, there should be confirmation that God's doing something through that ministry, um, whether it's in individuals or in a bigger picture. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They perceived what? The grace given to him. What grace? The calling to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. That was God's grace in his life. Here's another verse that will make more sense if you realize that Paul uses this term this way. Ephesians 3.8 it says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he has, again, this grace given to him referring to his ministry calling. Um, this is a good sobering thing because um, me serving in ministry, you know, I, I become the living martyr. Oh, I'm serving and I'm, I'm helping Lord and I'm, I'm doing my part and it's, it's hard, but I'm laying myself down. And Paul saw his serving, which cost him his life, which caused him physical pain and emotional stress and relational problems in his life. He saw it as God's gift to him. When you stop seeing serving as a gift to you, you're not seeing it clearly. Paul called it grace. And he saw his ministry as grace. So I'm not saying, oh, you should quit, pack up and go home. I'm saying you should change the way you see it. See it as grace. God it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. If I, was the, if I was honestly the doorkeeper at church, would I be like, what a pointless ministry I've got? Or would I say, Lord, this is your grace to me. Thank you that I get to serve you. And, and that, that's a good mindset to have. So he's speaking now uh, in Romans 12, 3. When he, I'll read it again. He says, for I say, through the grace given to me. Why does he say it's through the grace? His speaking, his proclamation, what he's about to tell them is through God's grace. What he means here is, I'm speaking to you as an apostle. But he's saying this in a humble fashion. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm laying down the law based on my authority in Christ. But let me just remind you, it's God's grace that gave me this authority. But I still have to live it out. I've, I still have to get up there and do this. And, and it's, not a, it's not a humble thing when, when, when a leader fails to lead out of humility. That's not humble. You know, that's, you should just do it through grace. Realize it's God's grace. So he speaks out of his role as an apostle. And um, which is another way of saying you need this. This instruction is important. The things that are about to follow in Romans 12 are instructions to the church from Paul, who is, who is building up the church in the Gentile world, which includes most of us. But obviously this applies to all of the church. Um, and we need this stuff. We need the instructions that are about to come in Romans 12. They're important for our functioning individuals, but also as a body of Christ as a whole. So let's, let's read on. He says, here's what he says. To everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think too highly of yourself. Um, now, Paul is about to get into instructions for behavior in the right functioning of the body of Christ, talking about gifts, character, and guidance for our lives as Christians. But before he gets into that, he has to deal with pride. Now, why, why is that? Because I think he begins with the issue of pride and humility because 
all of your relational interaction with other believers is going to be undermined if you don't have this humility thing taken care of. All the gifting in the world won't take care of your pride. You see a man who's proud, then you're seeing a man who's, who's what? He's going to fall. It's going to be destruction that comes next after this pride. Scripture says, pride is a bigger deal than we often realize. It will undermine everything in your life. Your marriage, your job, your family, your friendships, and your church, your fellowship, your local body of believers who you're connected to. Pride will destroy this. It will destroy, and it will destroy you more than anybody, whether you realize it or not. And that's the weird thing about pride. You don't know you have it. Like you don't see it. You're not aware of it. If, if you get that little niggling feeling in the back of your mind that says, I wonder if this is pride. It is. <laughs> this is what I've learned in my life, right? If I even, I wonder if this is pride. It is. You're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, right? And then at some point later, you'll look back and be like, man, that was a lot of pride. So if ever you, just, just personal advice to you, right? Just personal advice from my life to your life was, if you think you might have pride, you've got it. Because I've never been wrong about that, right? I've never once, but is this pride? And then later been like, no, nah, that wasn't pride at all. I was fine. No, every time seems to be pride. Um, and pride will affect everything else. It will undermine everything else. So he starts with humility and not having pride. Um, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how secure you feel in your life, pride will ruin you. It will ruin you. There's individual pride. And uh, Paul's talking about this. That each, each one of us, not to think too highly of yourself. This is described, in fact, pride here is described. I like thinking about what really is pride. What does pride mean? It's thinking of yourself beyond what you should or the elevation of yourself beyond what is appropriate. This is internal. It's in your mind, right? This pride's all internal. It's not external. It's not behavioral. It's mental. So he says, before I get into the behaviors of the church, I want you to get into your mental state and say, are you thinking too highly of you? Do you think too highly of you? Thinking of himself. Do you view humility as a behavior or as a mindset? Because Paul seems to treat it like a behavior. In fact, God seems to treat the behaviors of pride as being, I mean, sorry, Paul treats it as a mindset. Um, the behaviors of pride really flow from the mindset of pride. And so we're to stop and go, let me internally battle my pride. So when I come in the room, do I sit in the front? Do I sit in the back? Do I volunteer? Do I not volunteer? Do I stand up and speak? Do I not speak? Those aren't the issues of pride. The issues of pride is my motives and my thoughts about myself. That's where the issue of pride comes. So you might have someone who's bold yet very humble. You might have someone who's quiet, intimidated, yet they're very proud. And so these things aren't necessarily connected. Um, <clears throat> so it's important we see pride as a mindset. So we can avoid it so we can honor Christ in our lives. Um, the description of pride is this, is thinking of ourselves, quote, more highly than he ought. Now, that, this is interesting because it means that pride is not an accurate view of yourself. That when you have pride, you're not looking at yourself saying, no, I really am just good at this. And I feel good about me being good at this. Like, that's not where pride is. Pride is you just think more highly of yourself than is true. See, if you're like the Olympic runner who, who is the first place in the world Olympics of running thousand meter sprint-a-thons or something and you <laughs> it's like opposite things but but you 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 run and you do the thousand meters sprint or whatever if, is that is that a thing i know i know sports i'm so into sports 100 100 meter jump and you and you win <laughs> and you win this thing and your first 100 meter, and you're the best jumper on the planet for sure the thing is, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought is thinking that jumping really far is actually that big of a deal. Like, it's cool and all, but really? Like, you're a musician, and you play, you're skilled, and you could write songs, and you could sing, and you play well, and you got perfect pitch, which I wish I had perfect pitch. And you have perfect pitch, you know? And, you, and people like your style and everything, and they're going to your concerts, and they're, like, screaming your name. Do you realize that this is all, like, way overblown? You're not nearly as amazing as you think you are. No matter how good you are, it's just not that big of a deal. There's somebody like in the middle of the poorest country of the world who sings and plays better than you, but nobody knows them. <laughs> um, so not to think too highly of ourselves, not to think more highly than we ought. So that means pride, get this, pride is a lie. 
Pride is a lie I'm believing about myself and I get mad when other people don't believe it too. That's pride. Based on, I think, scripture here. This is why you can't take pride in your humility. Because pride in humility is just like double deception anyways because you're not humble. Pride is an inaccurate view of yourself. Paul's solution to pride isn't pretend to be less than you are. It's think of yourself appropriately. That's the solution. Now, I, I can do this biblically. I can go, well, well, who am I? Appropriately. I am a sinner who has failed in my sins more times than I care to admit, who's been saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, who's been renewed and made a new person in him. And all the good that might come from my life, I owe to him. And the skill and the arms and the legs, I owe to him. And I, I yet do have skills and I do have a calling and I do have abilities. But I give him credit. I see those as God's grace to me. So I'm thinking of myself not more highly than I ought. And so then I, I find myself right in my right place. I know who I am. I'm not kidding myself about it. I'm not, not this fake humility, which is just pride, you know, in reverse. Um, it's just a deception as well, but just accurately viewing yourself. It's an accurate self-image. So there's individual pride we want to deal with, but let me, before I go on, just mention church pride, because there's such a thing as church pride, right? You ever go to a school rally and they're like, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. Well, some churches are like this. You know, they go to church, they gather there, and they know that there's other churches in the city, but they know that we're really the best church in the city. We know that we're really the best one. And if only other churches knew our secrets, I've been to churches like this where they, they tear down other churches to make their congregation feel good about their fellowship. And I think that this is a form of pride, of like church pride. But we have to realize church is actually the body of Christ, not where you gather on Sundays or Wednesdays. I mean, you're, you're just tearing down the body to make yourself feel better about you. And so it'd be a right attitude to say, you know what? We're part of the body of Jesus Christ. And whatever I was about to take pride in, because my church has the best worship team in the world, I'd be like, that's great. My church has the Holy Spirit, and so does yours. Like, where, how are you going to boast against that? You know, It doesn't make any sense. Um, we're, we're the redeemed of Christ. We're the body of Christ. So I, I don't see how this can happen. This, and it can become bubble pride. It gets sort of deceptive. Like, the way our church does things, we have our own little routines and ways of doing everything. We have our own little language we develop sometimes in a fellowship. And we look out with suspicion at every other church. Like, hi, where do you go? Oh, oh, I've seen that church. I'm pretty sure they have stained glass. I'm not sure about you guys. Like, oh, yes. Oh, I saw your church. You guys have the marquee and you put something up that was a little weird that one time. I don't know about you guys. And we can get kind of like a bubble pride where we feel like our church. And you know that you've got this. When you find out someone serves at another church and you tell them, no, no, no. Come serve at my church because my church is the best church and who cares? Every other church can shrivel up and die because my church is everything. And I've, I'm just speaking from experience here. I've seen this and, um, and, and instead we should not think of our church fellowship, our local fellowship in that sense, lowercase c. We shouldn't think of our church as a uh, high, more highly than we ought. We should see that however valuable you see your church, whatever greatness you might see there in God's grace, well, he's got his people in other places too. And there's great things going on in other places too. And I, I actually rejoice in that because I was sort of raised in my younger walk being very suspicious of everybody, you know. And uh, I kind of inherited that from other people. And I, I just slowly, slowly grew out of that, you know, really slowly grew out of that. And now like, I meet other believers and other fellowships. And like, I don't care if your pastor wears a weird getup when he teaches. Like, it's not a biblical thing that he does it, but then there's no biblical demand that he won't do it either. It's like, I don't care. Like, are you preaching the word of God? Are you teaching the truth of Christ? Is your gospel sound? You know, you're probably weird in some area. I might be weird in 12 or 13 areas myself. Um, so, yeah. So I would say this, though, um, to the degree that we have pride in our mind, it means we're not thinking clearly. So you might, you might think you're wise. You may feel like you're wise and right. But when you sober up, you'll see how foolish you were. In fact, that's the word he uses, right? Everyone should have a sober mind. Look at the verse again, verse 3. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Arrogance or pride is compared to drunkenness. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that the Bible has an incredibly negative view of drunkenness. 
In fact, having a sober mind is a very important biblical principle, which a large number of potheads need to read about in our culture today. This is not a debatable issue. <laughs> like if your mind is not sober, you're violating a clear teaching of the text, clear teaching of scripture. But pride is worse than pot. And pride is going to mess you up even more. And it's going to damage your life and your fellowships and your friendships and all those things to a greater degree. How many families have ever fallen apart without pride being in the mix? How many marriages have ever been destroyed without pride being in the mix? How many people have ever backslidden without pride being in the mix? So it's a pretty big deal. So he says, get rid of this pride stuff. Um, when, you're, when you're drunk, as happens all the time with you, no, obviously, but <clears throat> um, I haven't been drunk since I was 12, so don't hold this against me. <laughs> That's another story for another time. I'm not proud of it. Um, but I've been around a lot of drunk people in my days. <laughs> Um, at family gatherings, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that. So I've been around a lot of drunk people in the past mostly. But drunk people think they have great ideas when they're drunk. But when they sober up, those ideas don't seem so great. Proud people think they have great ideas. They think they can see with clear discernment all things in life. And they can stand and they can be the quality control officers of the universe and they can look into everything and see how everything's going on. I mean, just read the comment section on my videos. <laughs> and you can see that the thing is, once the pride departs from you, you'll stop and you'll, you'll realize that while I, was, while I was nitpicking others, I was ignoring my own issues. This is the plank in the eye issue that Matthew 7 talks about. So, moving forward from the issue of pride, we, we've, we've, we've addressed that. So, how should I think of myself? I, I don't want to think of myself too highly. So, what's the proper way to think of myself? The key is in the end of the verse, and it's not what you'd expect. He says, uh, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. This is the, this is the way you can have, uh, get rid of your pride in your congregational gathering, in your gathering of the body of Christ. Think of yourself in the sense that God's dealt you a measure of faith. Now, what is meant by faith? Well, there's a few options here. Remember, we, we, we don't give theological meanings to words. First, we start with a dictionary definition of a word, and then we ask, is there a theological meaning here as well? Well, faith is what? Faith is, is, is a sense of belief, uh, conviction that I have about an issue. That's faith. Um, so one option is saving faith. God has given each of us saving faith, but that is hard to take in this passage, right? God's dealt to each one a measure of faith. What do you mean? A, it doesn't make any sense now. I don't know how it relates to the church. I don't know how it relates to pride or how it relates to thinking of myself soberly. Um, I have a difficult time with that. So I, I kind of rule that out. And most people do. Most people don't think that that's what's meant by faith in this passage. Instead, you could take faith as regarding specific ministerial works or spiritual gifts and callings God has placed in your life. And it's being called a measure of faith. That, I think, is what's being talked about here. Like having the faith to teach or to give, or to prophesy, or to exhort, or you name it. All the list that comes later in Romans 12 of spiritual gifts. So this context kind of seems to force this reading. Because faith, in fact, one commentator puts it this way, faith regarded as spiritual insight. Um, uh, like having the faith that you're just this faith, this conviction about your calling, in a sense. Something along these lines. Well, Faith is definitely the way that we engage in spiritual gifts. Faith is how we walk. We walk by faith. So the things I do for God, I do by faith. So in this sense, the measure of faith God's given you relates to your specific giftings. If you're a teacher, when you step out to teach, you're doing so by faith. That's the measure of faith you've got. Because the idea for you to teach came from the Lord, so you're responding to that. So that, that's the basic idea. The resource and the enablement comes from God, not me. So this God has dealt you a measure of faith, the idea is this. Um... Your gifts are how you should think about yourself in the body of Christ. That's really interesting. It's kind of like this. Like if I go to, a, a, to your tool shed or whatever and I open it up, I think about the functional abilities of the tools as I'm in the tool shed. I'm going to grab the tool for its functions. And I'm not going to grab a hammer and the hammer's like, I'm the best thing in the world. I can do all things. Need me to change a tire? I'll change a tire. It's like, no, you should be thinking about yourself soberly, hammer. 
in according to the, the measure of faith in which you've been given. You can hammer nails, you can pry things out, and you can be a good self-defense weapon just in case, you know. <laughs> like you have, you have some functions. And so in, a, in the same sense, we have functions and we should think of ourselves in the sense of our gifts. Um, that's not what I would have expected this passage to say. But that's, I think, what it's saying. Think about yourself in relation to the calling and gifts you've been given in the body. Why? So that you can get active serving. That's interesting. Verse 4, let, let's keep reading. Oh, before we go on, though, let me just say this. Because we're talking about gifts, um, <clears throat> it did say to each one. God has given to each one, dealt to each one a measure of faith. Gifts are not for pastors only. And oftentimes, pastors, and when they teach about gifts, they tend to teach about them uh, from their own experience. As a pastor, as a teacher, I experience the gifts in this fashion. So I teach about it as though you're going to experience it the same way as me. But there's a wide variety of gifts, and they function differently in the body. And primarily, your gifting takes place outside the building that you meet in on Sundays um, or Friday nights or Tuesdays or whenever you go. And, and so these gifts, the point is, these gifts are in you and they're meant to operate in you wherever you go throughout your life. That's the idea. Uh, so, so divorce this in your mind from just being about pastors. It's, it's universal to the body of Christ. Every one of us has gift or gifts, some of them long-term, sometimes short-term, according to God's will. So verse 4, let's keep reading. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're one body in Christ and we're individually members of another. So this is the analogy of the body of Christ. We use that term a lot, but it may have lost some of its truth in our hearts and minds. So let's talk about it just a little bit. Let me give you an analogy that might help. An analogy for an analogy. Is this too difficult now? Hopefully not. If you're tracking with me, I hope. Um, when I was a kid, I learned the term dysfunctional family. I don't know how much it was used before that time, but when I was a kid back in the 80s, back in the 1980s, back in the last millennia, millennium, millennium, aluminum, millennium. I'm just trying tongue twisters now. Um, but back then, I learned the term dysfunctional family, and the idea of a dysfunctional family is it was a term that meant Oh, man, like, oh, what a bummer. You guys don't have a family that's functioning properly. You don't have mom and dad and kids or kid or whatever just functioning in a proper fashion. But instead, somewhere, these relationships are broken in the way they relate to each other or people are just missing. That's a dysfunctional family. I came to understand that term quite well for a few different reasons. <laughs> but the implication is people aren't working in proper relationship to each other because family has roles and has a particular way it's supposed to work. Although our society now largely wants to deny this. They don't use the term dysfunctional family anymore. Have you noticed this? They'll just be like non, uh, non-traditional family. Non-traditional. This is like shoving a banana in your eye and saying non-traditional way of eating a banana. It's like <laughs> cute, but... It doesn't work this way, guys. Like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Um, now, so some people think there's, there is no such thing as a functioning family, but there obviously is, and there is a dysfunctioning family. And it's not like it's hopeless, but let's just say that there is a right way to do things, um, and God has made it that way. The same is true of the church. There's a right-functioning church, the body of Christ, where each member is doing their role based upon the gifting the Holy Spirit has given them. That's a right-functioning church. But many of us have learned to deal, at least in some areas, with our churches dysfunctioning. This means that if, if the body of Christ has a right way to function, if we have a proper way of functioning, and it's outlined in the scripture, this is gold, right? Like, I should be digging in the word to say, how should I do this as a church? Yet, oftentimes, church leaders don't want to do this because how inconvenient. I'm going to restructure my church. I'm going to reach, I'm going to change the thing. But I learned it this way. Tradition. You know, and it's, it might be hard to sort of shift things to try to be more biblical. Now, the Bible doesn't outline every detail, but it gives us some important things, and we should take these into our, into our churches the same way it's important that we take into our families the instructions for family that God gives. Um, so, there's, a, there's potential for a lot of good in the church, and more good, perhaps, than we've experienced so far as we function more the way he designed us. That's the idea. So this is a God-given analogy where the body of Christ as a physical body, so that's us with all its members working together in different functions in different ways, but intimately connected to one another. That's the idea of us as a church. 
The head represents Jesus Christ. We know that. And we're the members. And this achieves so much because this analogy shows us, one, that we're all of really important value. We have intrinsic value and worth in the body of Christ as Christians. And number two, it shows us that we belong together. You have incredible worth. I mean, don't, obviously this isn't about pride. We're just trying to think accurately of ourselves. I do have incredible worth. Wow, that's kind of neat, you know? <laughs> and in the body of Christ, I've been, I've been made an intimate member of, of each other, of you guys. Wow, that, that changes the way I, I view stuff. I, I see myself as part of this family of God. Um, that, that's important. Number three, it shows that we have different functions to perform. Just like my pinky form, performs a different function than my, than my leg or my liver or my kidney or my tonsils, which I still have. Um, I lived in the generation where they like to cut those out of people, but um, I kept mine. Just thought you want to know. Um, <clears throat> so we have, we have these things, you know, and, and perhaps, perhaps modern times we like to cut things out of the church that maybe God has placed for proper reasons. Um, but anyway, anyhow, good, good analogy there. I wish I'd thought of that and actually put it in my study. Um, so we have different functions to perform, which means you like have functions to perform in the body. And, and someone might look at you and think you're an appendix and be like, you don't actually do anything. And sometimes you <laughs> blow up and cause problems. You know, like Maybe you're like the appendix of the body of Christ. But, but in case you're a little behind on the science, the appendix actually has important functions. And unless it's malfunctioning, it should be left alone in the body uh, because it actually does good things for us. And so... Um, so in the same sense, I have functions to perform. I'm meant to have an interactive ministerial role amongst the other believers I'm surrounded with. Yes, that often takes place in a building, but not exactly in a building. Really, it's throughout my life. As I interact with other believers, I have a special role with believers that I don't have with the world. With the world, it's outreach. With believers, it's body ministry. And that's neat to me. And number four, uh, it shows that those functions... The functions, the giftings that you've got are for the benefit of other people. It's not about you. You're gifted to help and serve others. So you getting into your ministry isn't about you and your ministry, right? It's about blessing the body so that you can be a part of ministering to them. So we're selflessly serving. I think that's that's neat. And number five, it shows that we are an organism, not merely some organization. Now, organisms are organized, but there are plenty of things that are organized that aren't organisms. So I believe in organized church. Some people don't. They, they, I don't believe in organized religion. Or I was like, do you like disorganized religion? Like when we don't announce when we're meeting? <laughs> like, like we have a potluck, but we don't tell anybody. Like, <laughs> just, just coming hungry. They're hungry. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to organize and offend anybody. Like I don't understand the phrase, I don't believe in organized religion. I think it's a self-righteous rejection of, uh, of, of, of church when you're not even sure what you're rejecting or why. Um, but... We are not merely organized. We are an organism. So in all of our organizational stuff, we must remember we're the body of Christ. We're an organism. And we let this change the way we do church. That's the idea. That's the idea. Change, let it change how we do things. So we being many, we are one body. <clears throat> we're only one body in Christ. If you're not part of Christ, you're not part of the church. I don't care if you're a member at a fellowship or if you go there and you're not a believer. You're attending. You are not part of that church. You're not part of the church because you're not part of the body. When you get saved, you're part of the church even if you don't go. You are part of the church. You're just abandoning the fellowship, unfortunately. And I'm sure there may be long stories of good reasons why you feel you're doing this. The question is, are you doing what Scripture is asking you to do, what God's calling you to do, or have you found excuses for skirting those issues? Um, We often forget that we're one body, and this can cause division and and a serious lack of grace in our local church, in the way we treat each other. We have those we approve of and those we don't in our fellowship. Um, And maybe we're measuring grace the wrong way. Maybe we're measuring grace out in like teaspoonfuls when we're supposed to be giving out like like gallons of the stuff, pools full of it. And we're just kind of giving out small amounts to people we like and then kind of like holding back from others we don't. And when I realize I'm part of the body and I have part of my body that irritates and bothers me, as I'm sure you do too, you know, and something's aching and aching and aching, you don't just cut it off. You don't hate it. You're like trying to take care of it. Um, And this is the idea of us as a body. I really think that family should be committed to one another. There There is something to saying, hey, they're family. They're family. And so I have a stronger commitment to them. But in the body of Christ, I have an even longer lasting family relationship. So shouldn't I in my fellowship be like, hey, they're family. Hey, they're part of my body. 
hey, I'm, I'm committed to them. I'm not just going to cut them off at the first sign of a problem. I may even enact church discipline for the sake of bringing them back the right way. But the goal is restoring them, not just kicking them out. And when we have this attitude towards each other and towards those we serve with in ministry, it changes things. It changes things in, um, in a good way. So we're one body. We're one body. So this, uh, this is the idea that he's communicating in this passage in Romans 12. He set it up now. He's talked about pride and humility. And now he's talked about how we're one body in Christ, yet we're many individual members. So that's the contrast. One body, remember this, but you and I, yet different members. So that's the focus now is different members. And so here, let's begin in verse 6. We'll see there's a design, a right function for how we relate to one another in the body, and it seems to be emphasizing our gifts. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. And what did we say grace was in this context? Ministerial responsibilities, right? Like gifts to serve the Lord with. You have the ability to do things that others don't have necessarily that ability. Um, So, we have this grace given to us. Um, so the point is, it's not just Paul who received the grace to be an apostle. You've also received some grace given to you to do something for the Lord as well. That's kind of exciting. Um, it's you. The Holy Spirit has, according to 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, it says, one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Particular giftings. So pride can be cured partly by seeing this truth that I'm a member of you and that I have a right function with you. And then it's no longer, notice this, I'm not competing anymore. And isn't that part of the, 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 the meat of pride is this competition? It's me versus you. Like find a marriage where there's this going on and they're competing with one another instead of complimenting one another. And the same thing with the body. Uh, I've, I've, I've encountered this in ministry as someone who's, gets intimidated because they encounter someone who they feel has the same gifting as them, but maybe has a little stronger. And then they feel intimidated by them and they treat them weird. And it's like, that's not proper. We should be thinking soberly. Look, God has called me to what he's called me to. Let me serve you in that Lord and not be weird about things. Um, so what follows after this is a partial list of ministry abilities. Uh, it'll be prophecy, ministering or serving, Teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. These are the seven things that Paul's going to discuss here. There's other things like this discussed in other places. And we won't get to them all tonight, obviously. Um, But with each of them, there's a crucial tip given. So he's like, yeah, if if you give mercy, then here's my advice. If you're going to be giving, then here's my advice. If you're going to be prophesying, then here's the advice. There's these specific tips. So we'll, we'll analyze these gifts. Consider that one of them or more might be something you do, either occasionally or regularly. And the first one is prophecy. So let's get controversial. (laughs) Um, If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. First off, what is prophecy? Because this is an interesting question. What is meant by prophecy? I used to think prophecy was just telling the future. Well, that certainly is included in the idea of prophecy. Um, But that's too narrow because some prophecy is not telling the future, even from the perspective of the original audience. In the, in the text of scripture, there'll be prophecy and it'll just be, it'll just be something declaring forth God's word. Now, now before I, I go further on what prophecy is, let me say this. Some people say that these gifts have ceased, that prophecy in particular doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. I disagree. And I, I'm not going to make a case for that today. I'll do that sometime, but I don't think you can make a biblical case for it. That's the only reason why I disagree. I don't think you can say this biblically, that, that the gifts have stopped, that certain of these things don't work and the other ones do. Um, <clears throat> but we should at least understand what is meant, what it meant to those early Christians. So even if you were a cessationist, don't you at least want to understand the text in context and how prophecy was functioning for at least the Romans back then? And then who knows, maybe one day you'll be like, I'm glad I know that now that I've decided Mike was right. Um, <clears throat> think soberly, Mike, think soberly. <laughs> Um, okay, so the options for prophecy. Some think it's telling the future. I think that that is prophecy, but it's too narrow. Telling the future is prophecy, but that's not the whole story. Others, teachers will sometimes do this. They will think prophecy is basically teaching the Bible. Well, I'm declaring God's word, right? So it's prophecy. And I'm like, that's not the gift, okay? That's like not the gift. That's not what's in context here. There's a problem here. Well, then what is teaching the Bible? Why is teaching the next one on the list? 
if prophecy is just teaching the Bible, then why are there two? It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, but oftentimes, well, sometimes te- pastor teachers will sort of absorb every gift into their own ministry. And, and basically it's like all gifts flow from me. And like, I prophesy when I teach and I have words of wisdom when I teach and I have words of knowledge when I teach. And, I have words, and I'm not denying that they can have those things. But the point of the passage is how does this relate to your average everyday Christian, not to pastors and teachers? And so I want to focus on that. Um, so <clears throat> this gift can be used while teaching. You could be teaching and have a prophetic thing to say, but it's not limited to gifts in the pulpit. Um, and we shouldn't limit gifts to the pulpit. Um, in fact, we shouldn't limit them to church services at all. You may be going through the drive-thru and the Lord gives you a word for somebody. And we should be, I think we should be open to this. Um, so prophecy, I think a, a good definition of it is inspired speech. I'm declaring things that God is inspiring. That's, that's prophecy. Um, it's not just like I have an idea. I think the Lord's revealed something to me and I'm sharing it with somebody. That might be a word of knowledge, but prophecy is, no, no, the Lord's showing me to tell you this. I'm declaring something that's from God. This doesn't mean that you write it down and you add a 67th book to the Bible. And they didn't do that in the New Testament either. He tells the Romans about prophesying, encourages them to do it. Yet we don't have any record of what they said because it was for them. It was for that time. It wasn't for all time like the scripture is. So we put it in perspective. Um, So if the things that I'm saying are truly inspired of the Lord, then I'm speaking prophetically. So then he tells us how to prophesy in proportion to our faith. That's the idea. If prophecy, if, if your calling or gifting is in prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. That's really interesting. What does this mean? I think it means that if you're prophesying, you're prophesying according to an actual gift from God, not something made up, since faith previously is used in the sense related to particular giftings and enablements from God for serving God. This is like saying, just prophesy according to your enablement, no more, no less. God's given you a gift of faith in this area. Exercise it, no more, no less. Those are two errors we could make. If you have a particular faith that this prophetic statement is in fact of the Lord, that might also be in mind. In proportion to your faith, should I say this? Well, how much spiritually in your faith are you convinced that this is of the Lord? Then maybe that's how much you should proclaim it. Um, Now that might seem a little wishy-washy to some of you guys, so feel free to just consider it and think about it. Here's my personal thought. Um, there's been times when, uh, when I've had a conviction in my, in my heart, in my mind, in my life that, and I had strong faith that this was something that was absolutely true that God wanted me to share with somebody. And it was not, it wasn't my imagination. It it certainly didn't appear to be. Um, I've had imaginations too. I have a good imagination, (laughs) but this, this was, I believe a prophetic thing that God wanted me to share with someone. And so I shared it. And then the evidence was that it actually did come to pass. The thing happened the way I said, um, that's happened three times that I can think of. Um, so not very often, (laughs) but it has happened. And so it was proportioned to my faith. It was like, no, I really have this spiritual conviction of the truthfulness of this thing. And I'm going to go ahead and share it. And it came to pass. I didn't do what some people do, which is I prophesied to a total stranger run the other way and never see if what I said came, came to pass. Okay, well, how do you ever know if, you're, if it's of you or the Lord if you can't ever look back and check it later? If it's of the Lord, wouldn't you, be, wouldn't you be like, give me your phone number? Can I contact you later and see if this is the case? If not, I will, I will repent because I certainly wouldn't want to speak out, you know, not in the Lord. But if it is the Lord, then I can rejoice in that with you, you know? Um, uh, but the people who prophesy and then run the other way, I, I just wonder why. I just wonder why. And I've had that happen to me too, and it did not come to pass. So this, this seems to fit to me, the idea that you're prophesying, prophesying in proportion to your faith. I have a faith conviction about this thing that I'm sharing. This can be a little scary, though, because people are weird. This is why you have to have a track record. This is why scripture says, if let, let two or three prophesy at the most and let the others judge. Now, if we want to be a biblical church and say, well, biblical churches have prophecy, well, then there better be the other's judge part as well. Yet there are some churches where they stir up gifts like prophecy and they push away the other's judge part because they don't want to quench the spirit. But that's the Holy Spirit who inspired this. (laughs) 
I want to be biblical. I want to be, take a clean slate and let the scripture tell me how to do it and try to follow it to the best of my ability. I want to do these things. This is the application part, the point of what Paul's bringing up. He's not, he's not saying, notice, he doesn't say prophesy by faith. That would be wacky. I think I have an idea. Do you think it's the Lord? Ah, just prophesy by faith. That's not what he says. He says prophesy in proportion to your faith. As in the faith is already there placed by the Lord about this particular issue and you respond to it. So you're, you're responding to God. That's how I understand this. That's what I think it means. Um, and you may take that and consider it. The question then I have is, um, should I have way more of this going on in the church? When's the last time someone prophesied around here? Should we have more of this going on? When's the last time you did that? Or had someone do that? Um, I think, yeah. I think it should be more. I could be wrong. I mean, Paul doesn't tell us how much it's supposed to happen. But I figure if it's one of these gifts that's listed in the church and it's important for the functioning of the body, then we would probably see it happening at least sometimes. That makes sense to me, right? But here's where it gets dangerous, I think. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy to get to talk about this topic because I think it's really important for our day right now. Some people will take this gift like prophecy and here's what they'll do. They will, they, will, they will encourage the loose exercise of prophecy without the idea of judging the prophecies or checking a track record or making sure it's of the Lord, without any of that going on. And they'll, and they'll make up these rules. And I'm going to give you an example um, because it's happening in a lot of churches worldwide. This is, again, this is also happening over at Bethel in, in Redding, California over here. But that represents a large number of churches who are doing the same thing. And here's, here's what happened over at Bethel. Um, I heard a story where uh, Pastor Bill Johnson talked about how he got together with his staff when he was first going to try to encourage prophecy and spiritual gifts in their church. And he sat down. This is, uh, you can look it up on YouTube. It's on one of his 10 million videos. Good luck. But it's there. Um, and he sat there with his staff at the round table and he encouraged them. And he says to the staff, if Jesus was here right now, what do you think he would say? And so then someone shared and he says, how about you? And he went around the whole circle asking everybody what they think Jesus would say if he was here. When they were all finished talking, he got back to him. And in his own words, he says, you just prophesied. Now, to me, I think that's a load of baloney. Now, why do I bother pointing him out? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't doubt his sincerity, and I don't even doubt his love for Jesus at all. I think he wants to see revival in the church, and there's a sincerity and a goodness that's there. But that is not what's meant biblically by the idea of prophecy. Say inspiring words and pretend they're from Jesus. Now, how do you know that there's something wrong with the way you're doing prophecy in your church? Well, one, it never happens. Maybe something's wrong. And number two, it might be that it happens with special rules in place that aren't from the Bible. Like, say inspiring words. In fact, that's one of the rules. If you, if you go to a lot of these churches, their rule is we only prophesy encouraging things. Now, here's a thought. Is that what God's rule was in the Bible? <laughs> I only prophesy encouraging things, Ezekiel. <laughs> Jeremiah, like, like I only prophesy encouraging. Or, oh, but Mike, it's different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's only encouraging things. Really, are you familiar with the name Agabus? Do you remember when this guy came and took Paul's belt and bound himself and said, just so, the man who owns this belt will be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. Now, you can try to spin that and act like it was encouraging. But I think you're only going to convince the convinced, you know, <laughs> on that one. Um, so why it occurs to me as I was looking at their videos and looking at their content, trying to really understand where they're coming from, because they're having a huge influence around us. Why would you have to make a rule that you can only offer encouraging prophecies? And I can only think of one reason because people are making stuff up and you don't want to quench them making stuff up. You don't want to say, if it's not the Lord, we need to call you out instead you want to say, let's stir it up, stir it up, stir it up. More prophecy, more prophecy, more speaking in behalf of God, more declarations from the Lord. But, you know, you're telling people like, oh, you're in sin, or oh, you're this, or oh, you're that. and uh, Let's just make rules about what kind of things we can say, and then we don't have to have any measures or any protections from false words. Because, hey, if you're wrong, at least you were encouraging. Every false prophet in the, in the Old Testament was very encouraging. Think about it. Everyone. They're all very encouraging. The false prophets of Jeremiah's day, Jerusalem will never be destroyed. God will bless. God will bless. Jeremiah, don't prophesy things that aren't encouraging. Okay, that's obviously not biblical. 
And that's why I want to confront it. I want to just kind of put this out there. The, um, the idea here is that prophecy, I believe, is a biblical idea. I think it should be in our church and we should be open to it, but we should be responding to what God's giving us, not stirring things up on our own. We should be looking to check the track record, two or three prophets at the most in a particular meeting, and the rest should judge or discern whether or not that thing was really from the Lord. Because if it was from the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit too, and we should have some sense about it. In fact, that's what I think the gift of discernment is. It's the gift of being able to discern between right and wrong. Yes, that's the Lord. No, that's not the Lord. That's the idea. So, um, so yeah, we should have more of this. But beware the idea. This is the thing to beware. Beware the idea that whatever church around me has the most prophecy going on, they must be the most right on. That is not a biblical way of viewing things because Paul wrote a letter to the church that had the most prophecy going on and the most of all the spiritual gifts going on. And it wasn't a letter of, you guys are perfectly awesome. Every church should model themselves after you. That wasn't, that wasn't the letter. And so we shouldn't pretend that it is. Especially if that particular group is handling prophecy loosely and without the biblical constraints and instructions that God has placed upon them. So, so I want to have a clean slate and say, God, I do want prophecy, but I want it biblically. And I want to open us up to it. And I want to say this is that we're, we're going to actually wrap it up. I won't be able to get into ministry and teaching tonight, but we'll pick up there next week. But the idea is this. Um, when we do our Q&A and our, our time afterwards where we talk, if you feel like you have a word from the Lord, you really believe it's from God, then you should share it according to the faith that the Lord's given you. And we want to be open to hearing that and listen to it. And if, some, if we're getting discernment that I don't think that that's the Lord, then we should openly say so. Because we owe it out of, out of faithfulness to God to say so. And if I'm not thinking of myself more highly than I ought, then I would want to know if that thing that I think, maybe, maybe the Lord, maybe the Lord, maybe the Lord, maybe we can get away from always saying maybe and actually being able to confirm or set aside something. I think that seems to be the biblical method. So, not controversial at all. <laughs> Let's pray. Um, Father God, we, uh, we, we want to hear from you, Lord. We, we obviously take your holy word above all things. In fact, in scripture, we're, we're to test those things with scripture. So we, we do that. But we want to be open to you speaking to us through each other because it's through the functioning of the whole body, not just the pulpit, the whole body, that the body of Christ is built up and strengthened. So we want to be open to that. And we'd like, even here on Sunday nights, we'd like for our little group to become more and more, we pray, um, biblical in everything that we do. And just to be open to your leading and your guiding. Um, Not sensationalism, not cessationism necessarily, neither of those, just following the simple teachings of your word, God. So we we pray, um, guide us, please, Jesus, be the head, and let us be the body. In Jesus' name, amen.